Hi, this is Angie, host of the Nature Nurtured podcast. I have found that when I head outdoors with something on my mind and talk it out to the great wide world, spirit listens and often offers some pretty great advice. I invite you to join me today. We can move our bodies, soak in the amazingness of mama nature, and maybe even experience a little healing. My hope is that you take this conversation, find your own truths, remember who you are, and take that next leap on your own healing journey. Hello everyone, this is Angie, host of the Nature Nurtured podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Before we jump into the episode, I did want to say thank you to those who have left five-star reviews and also to those who have left a written review. I appreciate it a lot. It just helps people find my podcast. It'll show up as something that they may like in relationship to something that they're already watching. So the more activity that my podcast is getting through reviews and ratings and people following it, the more it gets pushed out to other people. So thank you for that. I did want to read a recent review from Jessica Dawn. She says, all of Angie's episodes are fantastic, but this is definitely one of my favorites. Angie has had me hooked from the beginning. And as I often think about my past life or the current life I'm leading, fascinating. I can't wait to talk to her more in depth about it. I listened to it an hour and a half before bedtime and instantly fell asleep after the episode. I was so relaxed and slept all night. No tossing and turning or a trip to the bathroom at 3 a.m. Thanks, Angie. And I definitely look forward to talking about that with her sometime. It just, and I love these reviews and I love when people reach out to me just in general through email or messaging on Facebook or however, because then it does really feel like a conversation and that's the point of this whole podcast is to talk about things that usually aren't talked about and then kind of open up that conversation to talk about these things. I just think that that is so much fun and definitely the point of the podcast. So thank you to those who have interacted. I appreciate it so much. Also, before we get started, I wanted to say I forgot to mention a couple of things during the episode. So I did want to talk about those now before it goes to the main portion of the episode. And those things are, I, I got kind of off talking about how, how grandma, how she just had this different lens that she viewed life through than, well, even through, even different than how I have viewed life for most of my life. And I kind of went off on this more of a path of how she was able to see life through this lens of joy and lightness and how she was able just to make the best of things with seemingly so much ease. And so I didn't talk, I I did talk some about some ancestral trauma in her lineage, but I forgot a couple of things that I do think are worth a mention because I don't feel like they are necessarily unique to her experience. They are most likely in everybody's lineage somewhere. And I do think it there, I would like to bring some attention to these things because there may be something there for you. So one of the things is, is that grandma only had an eighth grade graduate, an eighth grade education. And that was not uncommon during those times. Um, 
it's I think a lot of kids, especially rural kids in the Midwest, they did not go on to high school. Those high school classes, if you look back in the late 20s, early 30s, those classes were fairly small because you really didn't need a high school education at that time, especially if you were a a young woman. You weren't expected to hold a job as you got older. You were usually married and then you stayed at home and and raised kids and took care of the house. So especially for girls, it was not deemed necessary And even for boys, if you were going to farm or if you were going to apprentice to someone and learn a trade, getting a high school degree was kind of seen as an extra. It was like a bonus. It was for kids who maybe were going to go on and be doctors and lawyers and have more of a like a professional career and needed to go on to college. So the vast majority of the population, even making it to eighth grade was a big deal. Hence the whole eighth grade graduation promotion thing. I mean, it it was a big deal to make it that far. And so I'm not trying to say that she was not privileged in being educated because she was. What I want to focus on with her is that she really wanted to go to high school. She really did. And, And her dad said no, because she would have had to have had room and board in town. They did not live close enough to the high school for her to go back and forth every day. She would have had to stay during the week and possibly come home on the weekends. And so it wasn't in the budget. It wasn't seen as necessary enough to like really put the extra money and effort into that for her, I'm going to guess. And she was just, I think, needed at home um, to help mom It just didn't seem practical, but in her eyes, she was just a very curious, um, love to learn, very inquisitive minded lady. Like she, oh, I think she was just one of those people that's a lifelong learner. And had she had access to the technology we have now at our fingertips with our phones, she would have been tickled. She would have loved that. Um, but as it was throughout her adult life, she was always learning new things, whether that was watching something on TV or whether that was um, reading books. Like she liked to read, um, I don't know that they were like encyclopedias, but like world books, I think is what they were. She had a set of those from probably like the 50s or I don't know, probably the 50s. And she liked to look in those, I think. uh, And when she would watch TV, she enjoyed things that would where she could learn something. And she was at towards in her later years when I remember she, I mean, she loved watching young and the restless. Don't get me wrong, but she also did enjoy learning as she watched TV. And she was really, um, like I said, toward the end of end of her life interested in health things. And so she was always following her curiosity. And I think that's really cool. And I think I do get that from her. I I have that within me. And so I identify with that and I get that. Um, But what I guess the, the point of this conversation is just to draw the attention to the fact that she wanted to go to high school. She wanted to continue learning. She was actually, I think, very interested in like being a part of like the theater department she liked to do recitations in class. That was one of her favorite things. And so I think there was probably a part of her that did feel stifled. Um, like she wasn't allowed to kind of come into her own and follow her own 
curiosities and dreams um, because it just wasn't available to her. She was told no, and that was that. So I think, I think a lot of us have people, ancestors in our lineage that had been stifled in that same way. And I think we can definitely bring healing to that by just doing our best to follow our own path the way we want to do that. But it's something to be aware of. Um, and another thing, she, I'm going to say it was probably later in her teenage years when she was not needed at home so much anymore. She, because she got married, I think at 19 or 20. So probably right before that, she was a nanny for a little bit for a wealthy family in a nearby town. And she didn't talk a lot about that, but I am sure that she really enjoyed her time with the kids and filling that role of the nanny. I I can totally see that because later in life, she always had kids in and out of her house that she was babysitting and she really did enjoy kids. I think because she never forgot what it was like to be a kid. And so she knew how to keep them happy and entertained and with ease. I mean, she never seemed to be stressed about it. So I'm sure life as the nanny was fun for her, except for the fact that she did mention that the, the dad in the house would try to get into her room at night. And she remembers the doorknob rattling and she had the door locked, but she, I am sure that just the idea that he was trying to do that was uncomfortable for her. And I don't know, maybe she didn't stay along with that family. Once that started to happen, maybe she resigned and said, no, uh, this is not right. I'm not going to do this. I never got to talk to her about it. I guess I just never thought to ask the questions when I had the chance. And so now I'm left kind of filling in the blanks on my own, but I do, I do know that that did happen. She did talk about that. And I'm sure that that was unsettling. And unfortunately that kind of thing plus worse has happened to women throughout history and it still happens today. I think we all carry this mark on us of violence towards women. And even though a violent act was not committed towards her physically in that instance, there was probably this sense of, mm, I don't know what the right word would be, kind of, it's almost was like an invasion because it probably did spark some fear in her emotionally. And so that's, that is also a form of sexual violence because she knew what he was trying to do even though he wasn't able to do it it still emotionally I'm sure took somewhat of a toll on her and like I said that is not unique to her I know this still happens it's happened throughout history and I think we all carry some of that and And I don't know, I could have a whole separate episode on my thoughts on violence towards women and, and all of that. So I'll stop there because today we're focused on ancestral trauma. So I will leave it at that, but just, you know, be aware that you, that there's probably something in your line with that. And I think just being able to be a woman and be in our own power and make our own choices and... I don't know, just it help empower each other and teach our boys that we are raising 
to how to treat women with respect. I think that's the way to kind of heal this wound. I think it starts with that. And also even if you are married and you, and talking to your partner about it and just, I think having an awareness about it, bringing awareness to men, because sometimes they don't really understand the extra layer of I don't know what you would what you would call it. Um, this extra layer of like this constant awareness that women have to carry around with them. This constant state of am I wearing something that's going to attract attention? Am I doing something that's going to attract attention? Is there anybody around? It's getting kind of dark. I'm in kind of a you know a lonely place in the parking lot right now, and having to go through different steps to protect ourselves. And that is empowering to do that, but at the same time, it's like they don't always understand those extra layers of protection that we have to put in place for ourselves. So I think having the conversation in itself is empowering to have that conversation with men, with our peers, with our partners, and then also with the young men that we are raising. So that's kind of the way to help heal that, as that I'm sure, like I said, is probably in everyone, in all of our DNA, that that little wound there as it still is happening today. So I, I did, I wanted to talk about those two things because I meant to, and then like I said, I got kind of off on a different tangent with everything. And I did want to circle back and talk about those two things because I think they're fairly common in everyone. And then I also just wanted to make sure that, I mean, I feel like I painted the picture really well of grandma, but I wanted to throw in a couple of other things about her that really just kind of add a little bit more to who she was. And when I think of grandma now as who I am today, I just see her as this strong woman who did not bow to society's expectations. Like she did not jump through the hoops and do all the like things that women of the, I would say the fifties probably was when she was forties and fifties, maybe into the 60s, the things that women her age who were stay-at-home moms and how they socialized and how they went about their life other than being like the housewife mom, she did not insert herself into societal roles that were expected of her, if that makes sense. And it wasn't that she didn't have the money to dress the part and have the means to fit in. I think she saw through the bullshit of the facade of the whole thing and was like, I'm not going to be a part of that. And I, I feel like the way she said it was, she didn't, and she didn't say these words to me. This is coming from my mom that there was just this idea that she didn't feel like she belonged. I mean, even at church, she would make the comment about that and about how everybody just was all dressed up and all, you know, all the proper etiquette and all the things. And, and she just, I feel like she she said she didn't feel like she fit in, in all, even, even church, but in the other arenas. And I don't know that it was that so much. I think what she meant was not that she physically couldn't have pulled it off and fit in because People, if they want to be a part of society, they make, there's a lot of things that a woman could do to make herself look like she fit in, if that makes sense. And my grandpa had, he worked for the railroad. There was, it was not like 
they were not comfortable. I'm not going to say that money was flowing everywhere. I'm sure that it was never, I, I mean, it takes a while to build up through that system. And so I'm not saying that money was just coming from everywhere in life, that they came from money. And so they fit right into society with ease. I think that even if she had, it just, she just was not, that was not where she wanted to put her time and energy, if that makes sense. That was kind of like a long rambling way to say that, yeah, she just, I think she saw through the fakeness of all the things that women were doing to kind of jump through the hoops and the cattiness that was there. And I don't think she wanted any part of it. And I say that with such conviction because I feel the same, like I have those feelings as well. I have thought that growing up and then now into my adulthood as well. Not that there weren't times that I wanted to fit in, I did things to fit in. But overall, there was this feeling of being able to see through the facade of the things that people do to fit in that just really were not in alignment with how I felt like things should be. You know, like you can just feel when the energy's off, when things are not genuine. And I was just not really interested in being around people or being friends with people in a way that was not genuine or authentic even before I had necessarily the way to explain that. And I just feel like she was the same way. So, and I love that about her. Looking back, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. You did your thing. You didn't feel like you had to like betray yourself to fit in. And another thing, you, and I, you know that religious group that comes door to door and they have their pamphlets and they want to talk to you about their religion and maybe try to, I don't know that they're like trying to like convert you, but I suppose they probably are, even though I'm sure that they understand that going door to door and trying to, you know, come in and sit down and talk to people isn't going to be that. Um, I don't know. It's probably not going to work, but nonetheless, they do it. They feel called to do it for whatever reason. I think that's just how the religion just sees that, you know, trying to either save people or get people on the right track. I think it's done from a, a place of wanting to help. However, most people do not let them inside. I mean, it's, I know when I was a kid, if we were home by ourselves and, and they would come to our house, it was like, lock the door and hide. I mean, and that was just partly because we weren't supposed to open the door to anybody, but also it was just like, no, we're not going to have them come in and talk. Well, my grandma did let them in the house. If they would come over with their pamphlets and they wanted to sit and they wanted to talk to her about their religion, she opened the door and let them come in and she would let them talk and she would. And you know what? I think she did it out of kindness, but I also think that she did it out of curiosity. Like I said, in the beginning, she was most definitely one to like, just, she, she just, followed her curiosity. She was always up for learning something new. And I think that that was part, that was part of it. And it just makes me smile because now I don't know that I would let somebody in my house, but I, I am open-minded enough to listen to other people's points of view and to be polite and kind. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with them or that I'm going to, um, 
kind of be willing to go down the same path that they're going down. But I can kind of see a little bit of that in me as well. And I just, I smile when I see these things from my grandparents come out in me when it's, when it's these kind of things. And then I, of course, I also notice when the, the wounded stuff, you know, the, the trauma and the wounding, I, I, I do note that as well. But in this case, it's just funny. Um, just her curiosity and her open-mindedness and her willingness to open her home to people who usually did not find an open door. I'm pretty sure it was usually a door slammed or never opened in the first place. So, so that I think paints a really good picture of grandma. Like that just, that's who she was a hundred percent. Um, she didn't care about the norms. She did, wasn't going to jump through the hoops. She wasn't going to be fake. What you saw with her and what she said was, was authentic and true always. And, um, you know, as people age too, they, they lose their filter some. And I, I think maybe some of that was what I was seeing as of course I knew her in her later years more, you know, I didn't know her as a young woman or a, or a, a young mother. So maybe that, maybe she grew into herself over time. Maybe her kids have a different story than that. The one that I see, but I really do. I really think that it was kind of this, you know what? I'm me and that's fine. And I'm not going to judge you, but I'm not going to put myself out there necessarily for you to pick me apart. And it's, I'm, I'm going to watch where I put my energy and my time. So, and not that she ever said any of that. She absolutely did not. This is all just me kind of looking back and reminiscing. So with that, that's a little extra little sneak peek before we get into the episode, um, I will, I will continue to dive in. And I guess with that, let's go ahead and get into it. Today, I am again going to be speaking on the topic of ancestral trauma, this time through the lens of my maternal grandmother. And this is the third time that I've brought this topic so far this year, and I will speak on it one more time when I talk about my paternal grandfather. So this is the third of four installments of this, and the reason why I have chosen to talk about this so often and in in using my grandparents kind of as a springboard for it is because I think personal experience helps explain some things and it may also help people identify in their own family tree. Oh yeah, well I know that person's story and okay, I never thought of it through the lens of like ancestral trauma, but yes, I see that and I and I see where I may carry that within me. So that's that's the point and I think it's just it offers a kind of a a personal lens but also one that can be extended to you as where you can get curious about your own family. It's just easier to talk about these things when you can give examples and the examples I know are the ones in my own family because then I can relate them to like how I may or may not be carrying that within myself. So this, today, this is a little bit, I feel like, is going to go a little bit of a different route. Um, not that my grandma did not carry 
trauma, I mean, I can absolutely, I will, I will point to some examples of things that I think all of us carry that are not necessarily unique to her and her family or to me, um, specifically things around women and what we have had to deal with throughout history. Um, because I'm really going to be following her, the maternal line all the way back really to, to England in this case. Um, and I won't go into all the details of all the generations. I just wanted to mention that this is what I am specifically focusing on with her tree is that maternal line that goes back as far as I can trace it, which is many, many generations back to the 1600s to England. So that's looking at her mom's mom, mom, who's, you know, all the way back the, the mom's line, that maternal line. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit, I feel like this is going to go a little bit different direction just because of who my grandma was and how she chose to move through life and her, just her perspective, her lens is just a little bit different than the other two grandparents that I have previously spoken about. And not to say that it's better or worse or it's just different. It's a different, everybody has a different lived experience and everybody processes life and kind of moves through things that are hard in, in different ways. And you'll see what I, what I'm, I mean when I get kind of more into this episode, but if you have not listened to the other episodes about ancestral trauma, if this is kind of your first jump in to this podcast, ancestral trauma is just this idea that we carry basically from what I understand it, it kind of becomes mutated DNA because of things that have happened in our lineage, in our ancestry that then kind of, they do make an imprint on the DNA in our body. And then that mutation, that imprint is passed down through the generations until it is worked through. And I don't know what that looks like once you kind of clear it from your body. If you've already had kids, well, what about that? I don't know how scientific they're, how scientifically they're able to look at what happens moving forward. I think they've only been able to look at um, what has already happened, if that makes sense. So uh, the example I have used in the other two episodes is looking at Holocaust survivors' um, offspring uh, and like how they carry a lot of anxiety and depression tendencies within them, even though they really were not brought up hearing the stories of the Holocaust from the relative that experienced it. It wasn't that it was talked about. It wasn't that it was just really um, kind of secondhand passed down to them. It was, it, it was, pro- it was, usually not talked about and it was just found that these generations the the children the grandchildren the great-grandchildren just are kind of predispositioned to have these anxiety and depression tendencies and they they do link it to the trauma of the holocaust so um of course there are other events that have happened in history that we all carry 
within us. I mean, there's so many things that if you look around the world and, and see where you come from and see the history of that place, it, you can see where, you know, there's always, there's always a chance for trauma because we live in this world of free will and people trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate being human with emotions and free will. And so of course there's always, there's always conflict of some kind and just the scarcity mentality of will we have enough? I mean, it just seems like there's always something going on as humans have evolved and tried to figure this grand human plan out. So we all carry varying degrees of trauma. I think it just sometimes plays out more prominently in some people's lives than others. And I think, too, that... And I and this is really kind of the focus of today's episode is everybody carries the trauma. Of course, it's varying degrees. And trauma sounds like such a dramatic word. But there can be big traumas and little traumas. And basically, trauma just being things that have happened that were difficult and challenging and left a mark of some kind. So, you know, and everybody's, everybody has these things. Some people just have more of a capacity to be able to move through them. And some people struggle more with that. And it just kind of depends, I think, on how the traumas come in. If there's a break in between them, if you have support what your kind of personality or astrological makeup even is, like how you came in to this world with what tools, like with what features do you have to kind of help you navigate being human? Like I really do think we choose our astrological makeup. We get to kind of pick when when we come in and for the purpose of being able to use those, the gifts that come with that to help us navigate life. I mean, I think we kind of know coming in the things that we want to work on, the challenges that we want to endure to try to learn and grow. And we also want to come in with the, as much, let's see, I don't know, tools maybe isn't the right word, but as many helping things. I guess that would be tools. I don't know. I guess that it just seems like a really funny word, but for this, um, but yeah, the things that we can use as kind of a, our strengths, I guess, to help us get through the things so that we can succeed because that's the ultimate goal is to be able to, to learn and grow from the challenges that we pick for ourselves. And of course, you know, with free will, sometimes those challenges become more than we thought they would be. Um, Just depends on how human life kind of plays out before us because there's no guarantee. We can kind of get a general idea, but until we're here and it's happening, it plays out kind of just... Yeah, it just happens as it happens. And so sometimes I think we get more than what we thought we signed up for. But again, how we handle these things. If we can 
move through them right then and there, whether it's because we have, like I said, whether we have the support, whether we have the time in between the things that are happening to us, because it just sometimes seems like it's just constant without a break. And I think those times are harder to deal with for sure. And yeah, I think just the personality, how you just are set up to deal with challenges. And if it's something that you sit and stew over, or if it is something that you have more of a natural resiliency to just move through, I think that all of that comes into play. So that's why I think you see people who who themselves have gone through a lot, or you can see in their family history that their ancestors have gone through so much, and they really kind of seem unscathed, and they they just seem to move through life with this, I guess resiliency is the best word for it. Um, and, and they just kind of continue on and they always just seem to have this attitude of, you know what? It's okay. And, and it's not, there's a difference between that being genuine and that being a fake resiliency. There's, there's definitely a, there's a, there's a difference and you can feel it in people. I think, um, if you're, if you're paying attention to that, because when you fake that and you're, you're really just stuffing it down, but some people are able to really actually just move through that and it, and it's very genuine and it's just how they, it's just how they are set up to roll through life. So with all of that, as kind of the background about why I talk about this and really it is just an awareness thing. It really is understanding that yes we are our own sovereign beings however we carry within us DNA and that is passed down from human to human throughout time and history and if it is carrying these trauma markers or marks on on us then those do become part of us and sometimes they do show up in our life in in unexpected ways and I think if we're carrying things that don't make sense to us, people are like, what is this? And why am I, why do I have so much trouble in this area? And you can't figure it out that it's been in your own life. And, and maybe you're not into, cause you know, there's also the idea of other lives of our own that we might be carrying traumas from those that haven't been worked through. But then there also is this ancestral trauma that is passed down. So I think just having this awareness that if you are having these thought patterns that you can't figure out from this lifetime, that you can dig deeper, whichever avenue you choose to go down, whether it's the ancestral route, whether it's the other lives route or all of the above. I mean, I kind of get into all of it and kind of see what, what there is to see on all, on all sides of that. So, and that's just me. And I know that some people don't want to deal with it at all and that's okay too. So this is just to bring awareness that this is a thing. And by telling the story of my grandparents, it's a way I can make it personal and easier to kind of show, Hey, these are kind of the things that you might look for in your own family tree or just to get you curious in general to look in your lineage and see what might be there. So with all of that, today we're talking about Cornelia Elizabeth and 
I want to start with the fact that, she, okay, so she was born August 31st, 1919 on a farm in Marion County, Kansas. And if you are not familiar with Kansas in the summertime, and I know the end of August is kind of inching towards fall. However, there are some years where that time of year is in the hundreds for temperatures and the humidity is still kind of high and it is just suffocating here. And there are times that, you know, we get weeks in August or into early September where we do kind of get that um, taste of fall where it does dip down cooler in the evenings and the humidity kind of goes away and we feel some relief in the temperatures. But, and I don't know, I would have to look and see if I could find out what that day was like, August 31st, 1919. I know they do, you know, there are temperature records. I could, I could find out that just kind of popped into my head that I haven't ever really looked, but man, being born at home in that small house that she was born in, and on a hot summer day, and I don't know exactly what time of day she was born. I don't know that I've seen her birth certificate or if she has a birth certificate. I do know that she was, that the doctor did not make it in time for her birth, that her mother had already given birth to her and the doctor came later. And from what my grandma used to say, I don't know that he had a scale with him. She did not think so. She thought he just kind of picked her up and held her. And when he was checking her over, um, said that she was 10 pounds. So that is not a very accurate, I mean, I'm sure he, he probably was an old country doctor who had been involved in hundreds and hundreds of births maybe. And, and he just could tell by picking up a child and kind of know, yeah, that's, that's heavier than the normal average, you know, six or seven pounds. And we'll just call her a 10 pounder. I don't know, but that's, that's what she said. She was, the doctor said she was 10 pounds, although yes, he was not actually present for the birth and did not, I do not believe that he brought a scale with him, but I could be, I could be wrong about that, but I really feel like it was just, he was giving that a, a guesstimate. So I cannot imagine giving birth to a 10 pound baby at the end of August in Kansas. I mean, especially if it was in the middle of the day that or laboring all day, one way or the other, whatever that had to have been hot. Women are tough. I just have to always throw that out there. Like that does not, Oh my goodness. I cannot imagine my oldest was nine and a half pounds and he was he, um, a C-section baby. And I just, I cannot, I cannot imagine that. That was a lovely experience for her mom. She was not the first. She was not the oldest. She had an older brother. She was, um, so she was the second of five children and the oldest girl. She, the youngest was also a girl, her younger sister, several years younger than her. I want to say like maybe even 10 years younger than she was. So, um, and I'm going to guess being the oldest daughter, she was probably her mom's kind of right hand. I know my daughter is my right hand for sure. I mean, she is so helpful. And I, I think that was kind of what was expected during those times in the, 
you know, 1920s into the 1930s, I think it was expected that you help your mom and you learn how to run the household and help with the kids and, and the chores and all of the things. And so I'm sure that that's, that was what was expected of her as well. I know that she, she was a a young teenager in the, in the depression. And I know that she talked about how they were never hungry. You know, they lived on a farm. They had animals they were able to, you know, they had milk cows. So they always had milk to drink. They had, um, they had their own livestock. So they had meat to eat and they had chickens for eggs. And I, she never talked about it being just like this horrific time of poverty. I think it, she kind of made the comment, well, everybody was poor. So, I mean, I don't know that there was a big change that she would have been able to notice in her life from her earlier childhood to when it shifted into those early teen years when the depression began. I don't, I I think that farm life was always kind of touch and go just depending on the weather and how the crops did. So I don't, I don't know that she noticed a difference in the financial situation during that time in her life. She just always would say that, you know, they always had, they always had what they needed. They always had enough to eat. She talked about how they would go to town on Saturday nights. The store stayed open late and you could do your shopping. And I think, you know, they would go get the basics from town during that time. So it sounds like they had, you know, they were able to do that. So, and I don't know if she, she never talked about wearing the flower sack dresses and either did my other, my other grandma. So I don't know. But then I've talked to other people from that era that did very much remember wearing the flower sack dresses. And by those, I mean that the, the people who owned the mills, they made the decision to sack the flower in cloth that was pretty. Like they would make them into different, into prints that were not just plain white or whatever that kind of like tan um they would they would put floral prints or whatever on them knowing that the women were using anything they could any fabric that they could to clothe themselves or their children so they they kind of that was their way to help i think during the depression i think that was what a gesture of kindness really to that was such a a way to take off the pressure a little bit from the moms where it's like, I feel like I can't get anything nice for my kids. And, and you know, were they still using flower sacks? Yes, but they looked nicer. And there's just that pride that comes with being able to present yourself in a way that you feel like you look nice. And I think to the little girls that wore those, they did feel special. And I know I have a neighbor that when we lived in town, uh, she was born, so she was a, a little bit younger. Um, she was a, a small child, smaller in the, in the 1930s. And she loved that. I mean, she remembers wearing those flower sack dresses and she was the only girl in the family. And so, and the extended family as well. So like with the cousins and everything. So her aunts would also save their flower sacks. And so she kind of got the pickings of all of that. And she always commented that she had cute little dresses from those. So, Anyway, that was kind of a little off topic, but just to say that 
grandma didn't really have a lot of what I would feel like would be trauma from the, from the great depression. She didn't, if times were tough, she, she didn't seem to carry that with her. She did also talk about how they had to hang wet sheets in the windows with the dust. And that was also kind of a way to keep cool. I mean, I think that was a constant, constant job of wetting those sheets and hanging them back up. Um, like I said, I do think it was a way to keep cool in the evenings, but also it did keep the dust out, hanging the wet sheets. Um, but even despite that, I mean, dust was coming into every crack and crevice and they lived in a, an old house. Even then it was an old house, you know, and, and it was not well sealed up and insulated, of course, you know, so that dust could come just right on in the house. And so she did talk about how when they would sit down to eat a meal, when you kind of have the table set, you always wanted to put the plates and cups upside down so that dirt did not collect in them. And then kind of as the food came to the table before you started to pass everything around, that's when you flipped over your your dishes so that you were eating a little bit less dirt because I'm sure it still was hanging in the air and got onto the food and all of that. I'm sure everything was probably a little bit crunchy, but yeah, I mean, and she never, I mean, the way she talked about it was almost not like it was an adventure to like figure out how to navigate the dust, but it wasn't with this tone of like, oh my gosh, this was devastating. Um, so I don't know if that's just, I think too, that where, where she was from in Kansas was not the height of the dust bowl. Like it, there were places that were hit so much harder than our area in Kansas. And so it was not like some of the stories you may hear from Texas and Oklahoma and kind of Southwest Kansas. Those places were definitely, definitely, um, hit a lot harder. So I think maybe it just, she remembers it. She remembers the dust storms and she remembers, you know, fighting that battle with the dust in the house. And maybe her mother would have a different view of all that. Maybe this was just coming from this, um, kind of adolescent perspective, but she didn't seem much bothered when she would tell the stories of that. It wasn't like a woe is me story for sure. So, and you know, I just, one of the things that I just love, and I think that this was also a carryover from being raised in a time and place where there was not a lot of extra, that she could entertain, she could entertain herself with very little. And she passed that, I mean, she, as a grandparent, passed that to her her grandchildren. So to me, like I would, looking back, it's like she could entertain children with like next to nothing. And my mom tells stories of that too. Like she could keep kids busy and having a good time with like very few materials. I mean, she could make anything sound fun. And I just, and that's why I say this episode is really just a whole different lens because that was, I think, how she just moved through life. Like, for example, um, my mom remembers her um, having them like, oh, and a lot of my, of my mom's childhood was spent outside 
complain. But there were times when, you know, rainy days or winter days or whatever, where the kids were stuck inside and, and like, you know, how kids are on board, what's there to do. Um, and grandma would say, well, let's make a paper chain. Well, you know, there wasn't either they didn't have construction paper or there wasn't the idea to use the construction paper. It's like, well, it's more fun if you use the white paper and you have to color the paper first. So man, they would get busy. And I don't know if this was like a paper chain to count down to Christmas or just to count. I don't know. I do believe it was an idea of counting down to something because with a paper chain, then you, you tear off the days as you look forward to whatever event it is. But maybe it was just for decoration. I I would have to ask mom about that, but she would just talk about, how, yeah, let's color, go color the paper, you know, get that paper all colored up, whatever colors you want to use. And then, and then, okay, let's cut the strips and then let's glue it together. And it's just so funny because that activity, such, you know, paper and crayons and scissors and glue, and it kept kids busy forever. And I thought that was so great, just that she had this ability to like, just kind of channel that it's almost like this inner teacher within her that just knew what kids liked and how to facilitate these activities and keep them kind of out from underfoot in a way that wasn't like you're being a pain in the butt just go on it was like hey here let's try this and and I also remember when I would go stay with her it's like do you want to wash the windows like here some newspaper and some windex and I mean it just she made it sound like it was so much fun and she didn't care if you really did that great of a job or if you if you had the windex running down everywhere or or whatever like it wasn't the outcome of it it was just like wouldn't that be fun it's just so funny the things that just were ways to keep kids busy or she would save up the heels of bread until there was a sack full and then you'd get to go to the park and feed the ducks or um, as a child she would go lay underneath I think mom would call it I think it was the hog shed it was like the tin roof of that and when it was raining and listen to it rain that noise on that tin roof uh, made a good sound and so she would take my mom for rides in the rain. Let's go for a ride in the rain. She liked that sound. It it probably reminded her of being a kid. That sound of the the raindrops hitting the roof of the car was similar to the 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 metal on that shed. So just and you know, let's go drive by the firehouse and see if the fire truck if the doors open and we could see the fire trucks. I mean, it's just so funny the things. It took so little to entertain her. And she could bring that excitement to yet another generation. I remember um, one time I had been at her house and she met, she took me to my mom's work uh, and we were waiting for mom to come out to to be done with her day at work. And we were just in the parking lot waiting and it was graveled parking lot. And she was like, well, here, let's, let's sit down here. And, and I mean, gosh, darn, she was like, at this point, she had to have been in her mid to late sixties when let's just sit right down here on the gravel or squat down or whatever. And let's, let's use these rocks and let's make a pin. And then here's the animals in the pin. I mean, it was just this whole like farm scene out of rocks and stuff like sticks and things. And that was just that one time I remember 
doing that with her. But again, you know, trying to kill time, waiting for my mom to be done with work. What materials do we have? We have gravel. What can we do with the gravel? Okay, well, let's make a farm scene. I mean, just the imagination there and just this willingness to share it with her kids, with her grandkids. Another thing that was, that I remember doing at her house specifically, because she lived in town, uh, the way her street ran, if it would rain, and I specifically remember this in the summertime, because that's, you know, we would go out in it, like just a nice summer rain, no lightning or anything involved. And just the way that rain would, water would run down her street. It's like, oh, let's gather, you know, watch the sticks go all the way down, you know, like start up at the top and like put a leaf and then watch it float down or put, you know, try to make a little dam or whatever. And just, it was, and just being barefoot out in the rainwater. I mean, those were all things that she instigated, that she showed us, let's do this. This is fun. Um, So different than the stories of, you know, like baking cookies or, or sewing or doing, I I don't know, just more of those traditional kind of grandmotherly activities. Nope. We were, (laughs) we were cleaning windows and, and making little forts with rocks or little farm things with rocks or making little dams with sticks as, you know, to block the water running down the street. I mean, the things, she was just so creative. And I just think, that that had to have been some carryover from growing up in a time where I'm sure she didn't really have toys. I mean, she never said that she didn't, but she never talked about anything that she did have, like her favorite doll or book or, I mean, she didn't really talk about that. I mean, I just wonder, I'm going to guess there wasn't a lot for of money for extras and you lived on a farm. So, I mean, you kind of had all of the fun things that come with, and I say fun from my perspective, of course, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't always fun and great, but I mean, you had things to do. You weren't just stuck in the house. There were places to go and explore and you kind of made your own fun and you had to have an imagination. And I just think that she chose at that point in her life to make the best of it and not be sad about not having more or feel like she was getting the short end of the stick in any way because so-and-so's family had more. And maybe that's because she didn't see that, you know, maybe when she went to school, everybody seemed kind of the same. I really, I really don't know, but it just seems that she was really good at making the best out of a situation and really good about having an imagination and kind of creating her own sense of fun and and entertainment. And I don't know that that's necessarily unique to her. I I mean, I think that may be a generational thing that, that kids were able to do that. But I don't think that that always is how people of her generation move through life. I think a lot of them moved through life with more of a seriousness. I think of my other grandparents and I feel like they, they seem to have a more, a, a heavier not as light and and playful experience and it's not because I mean my my dad's mom was orphaned and I mean that definitely played into that and that I told her story uh, back in July 
So I won't get into that again, but I mean, everybody has their own circumstances. And so she was dealt a little bit more, but still, I just think sometimes too, it's just in your nature on how you handle things. And so I just love that she seemed to come at life with just a lightness and a creativity and a curiosity that just kind of always kept her spirits up, if that makes sense. And you can just see that in life as she moved through even, okay, so when she was 80, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. And this was a time where I was away at college. And so I, I did not, I kind of wasn't there for a year before I had come back. And then um, I was more involved, but I was, I kind of missed a year of that. And she, so, well, I guess it would have been leading up a little bit to that, like my later years in high school. And you know how high school kids are. They just, you know, are kind of more worried about themselves. However, so she was diagnosed with colon cancer. She had to have a colostomy bag And usually when somebody is that age, doctors do not recommend after the cancer is gone doing a reversal. Typically, if you have a colostomy bag at age 80, that thing is staying with you for the rest of your life. They're not going to, it's it's kind of a risky deal to do the reversal at that age. So typically they're like, eh, really at this advanced stage in life, you're looking at just a few years with dealing with this. So it's okay. We're just going to leave you as you are. Well, not my grandma. She's like, nope, we're going to, we, I, this was fine. Like I went through the stuff. I, I had the treatments. I did the things. She had her colostomy bag. She'd named it Fred. I mean, she just found, she was able to find humor in this part of her life that had to be really difficult at that age to have a colostomy bag and deal with the medical things that come with that and to still maintain this sense of humor about it. And, but she, nope, she got Fred removed, um, said goodbye to Fred. I, I feel like there's that she buried him in the backyard. And I thought that was really funny. I don't know why. Again, this light joyful, it's just like, nope, this is, we're closing this chapter. You know, Fred is gone. This is it. Cause he was, a. I mean, this colostomy bag was a part of her life for a while. And it, it significant, you know, it signified this change in her world and then being able to overcome that and kind of put that to rest and continue on with life. And, you know, she lived to be almost 93 years old. And so thank goodness that she made that decision. And those next almost 13 years were probably a lot easier, more carefree, not having to deal with that. So, I just love that she she handled it when she had to. She made the decision, I'm done. I want to I want to have this removed. And she did just fine and carried on with life and but was able to find the humor in her situation. She always could find the humor. I feel like I mean she was the first one to kind of laugh at herself about things or or bring humor to a situation and not in a way that like where it wasn't being dealt with, but like, we're just going to laugh through this and move through it. And I just looking back and I, I really have just honed in on this about her as an adult looking back and just kind of how I, my natural way 
to move through life was not that way. It was to be more over serious and to kind of have that victim mentality. And now that, I mean, 42 years old, looking back, I'm like, man, she didn't have that. Like wherever that was coming from within me did not come from her. Like she was able to really, like I said, find, find the joy and make the best of things. And I just, I just love that about her looking back. I think, I think that is such an amazing trait to have in life. And I do think it started from when she was little. I think that's just how she naturally just moved through things that were challenging. You just, you just look for the best. You make something out of nothing. And I I think that's just, I am, I feel like as I'm moving away from my, my way of being how I was before with that victim mentality. And as I've brought healing, I noticed that I am almost channeling more of this energy that she brings. And I know that she's with me too. And so I think she has helped me bring that into my life as I have healed things and have been able to move through life differently. I mean, I do think that she has, has had a hand in that. I really, I really do. So, okay. Shifting away some about this, this lightness and this resiliency that she carried. I want to, I also want to kind of bring some attention to this pattern in her lineage, this maternal lineage of, so her great-grandmother and her grandmother both married at age 15 and they both married men more than twice their age. So their husbands were like 33, 34 years old. So mid thirties marrying a 15 year old girl. I mean, 15, that's a freshman in high school. Marrying a middle, like a basically, especially in those days, a middle-aged man. And so that was, like I said, that was her grandmother and her great-grandmother. So you had a mother and a daughter who kind of had that same pattern there. There was two generations of this, I want to say behavior. And I don't know the circumstances. I understand that in those days, in the 1800s, the early to mid, especially, that that was not uncommon. It was obviously not against the law. Um, it seems very criminal to me, you know, right now in 2022, it's like, oh my gosh, that would be terrible. That's like my daughter marrying somebody that's closer to my age. Ugh, that just does not sound healthy. So, but I understand that in those days, it was not uncommon for an older man to marry a younger woman um, because he was established in the world. Um, they they lived, they'd made money, they had land, they had a house, so they were able to provide. I understand that it was not uncommon for the husband to be several years older than the wife sometimes. But man, that seems excessive to me. Like... <laughs> I don't know. I cannot really kind of get over that. I've really been bothered by finding this out. And I mean, I have marriage certificates that list the ages of 
the of the bride and the groom. I mean, it's it's real. And also those dates match their birth and death. I mean, it all, it all adds up. It was not a mistake. Like they, this happened. And then they went on and they had their first babies by the time they were 16. So I don't, and I tried to kind of see if I could figure out if they were pregnant and that was why they got married. It really, it was too hard to determine just, there's not enough information to kind of dig into that. I, I, I don't think so. Um, unless it was somehow, I don't know, um, just looking at those census records and trying to figure out, because sometimes you could tell what month, like how many months old the baby was, and then you know what, if you know when they got married, you could kind of figure it out to see if the math, I don't know. It, it didn't appear to be that that was the issue, so I just cannot wrap my head around why. Why a parent would sign off and say yes to marrying their 15-year-old daughter to a man that old in their mid, in his mid 30s i don't know if they thought that that was a way to ensure that she was taken care of and i don't know i i feel like i that i have come across this and i don't know if it was these two women or if it was in other ancestry work that I had done where it was because the dad had passed away and then the girl felt like, you know, she needed to be one less person for mom to take care of. So she would get married and then maybe that the husband could help take care of the younger siblings and the mother. So I know that sometimes that was happening. I just don't think that that was the situation here. Um, but that would be another reason for it. It's just, I don't know. And I don't know how well vetted these men were, you know. Why were they so interested in these younger girls? What they brought to the table. Why the parents felt like that it was going to benefit the family in some way. I don't know. But here's where I feel like... I carry a little bit of that situation, even though my grandma's mother was not in that situation. She was a little bit older. I want to, I want to say she was 18, 19 when she got married and she married a man that was similar in age to her. So it was just a couple of generations there where I was just like, whoa, what was happening? But I feel like still women went from being in the care of their fathers to being then directly handed over to a husband. And there was not very many women. There were some, but there were not very many who had the chance to be independent. And whether they wanted to or not, they weren't going to college and and living on their own. They weren't being young women going out into the workforce and, you know, having a job and supporting themselves and, you know, maybe having a roommate, but not being bound to somebody and dependent on somebody to take care of them. There were just not those opportunities. It was not, there were women that were maybe widowed were forced into those situations. If they had no one to care for them, they, they had to find work and work for women in those times prior to I mean, I would say 
before World War II. I mean, and of course, after two, I mean, the, the pay has not been fair. I mean, it, it still, I don't think, is always exactly equal. But anyway, talking more of back in the 1800s time, I mean, just there weren't opportunities for women to be independent. And it was frowned upon. You were kind of ostracized. You were, I mean, like a lot of times it was you ended up being a spinster because... I mean, a man wasn't going to want an independent woman because then you can't, there's no control there. And it's kind of embarrassing if you can't control your wife. I don't know. It just, there's, there was a lot of, I just wonder, I just feel like there was a lot suppressed there. And so we would all carry some of that unless you had ancestors who all were very independent women and who broke the mold. I mean, we all carry a little bit of that. All of, all of us do this like, I can't be my own person. I can't follow my own interests. I am destined to be a wife and a mother and to be the caretaker. Even if that was like not in her personality. Like a lot of women, I'm sure did enjoy that role, but I'm sure a lot of them also felt very stifled and like they lost their identity completely, you know? And, and I feel like there's a part of me that I went from being living at home under the care of my parents. I went to college one year, lived in the dorms with my best friend from high school. So again, not really super independent. It was in a very um, controlled environment. So it's not like I was having to make a lot of decisions on my own as far as my where I'm living, what I'm eating, um, if my car is were, you know, I was still very much in the care of my parents still, I would say, even though I was living away from home. And then I was, I started dating my husband when we were seniors in high school. So I have been with him ever since. So when he, he went to a trade school, got a job at 19. Then I lived with my grandma the one that I'm talking about, I live um, in this episode today. I lived with her while I was going my last three years in school. I moved back to um, more of my hometown area, lived with her, but spent a lot of time more with Nathan. I would say between my parents and him, they both were still caregiving for me and my grandma too. Like I didn't have to, ha- I did not have that experience of having to find an apartment um, and being like completely independent, having to save up for my own vehicle. Like I didn't, I didn't go through those motions of kind of being initiated into adulthood. Like I always was cared for. And then I, we were married at 21. Then I graduated from college that spring, got a job, but I was married. So it wasn't like I had to then figure out how to budget money for myself or, any of that stuff. So I felt like even though I had choices, I mean, I chose to, to be in a relationship and get married. And it it felt like, I mean, and it wasn't, it was a good choice. It wasn't like I, it's not like I regret that choice. I mean, we've been together for 20 years, but I just, there's this part of me that's like, could I take care of myself? Would I be able to do it? And I I kind of almost carry this fear within me of, you know, what if something happens to my husband? Am I going to be able to support myself 
and know how to do all of these things. Like what if, what if I get a flat tire? What if my car breaks down and I don't know what to do with it? And what if I get screwed around because I'm a woman and I don't understand, you know, the mechanics of a vehicle or I I don't know. And that seems so like 1950s worried, like seriously, I mean, call triple A to help you with your tire. Like it's not, there are things I can do. It's not like I don't know anybody and I don't know how to, you know, use technology to find help. It's just this idea of, I didn't ever get a chance to be independent and I worry now there's this fear of, could I do it? So I do carry some of that. And I don't know if that's just, you know, me or if that's passed down, like women who didn't have the choice and they had to be kind of under the control of men their whole lives in here. I chose this. I mean, I, I didn't have to choose that and I did choose it. And was I falling, like, was I subconsciously like kind of falling into this pattern of like, you know, this is what you do. I don't, I don't feel like that was the case. I feel like I definitely married for love, not for convenience. I know that a lot of women had to marry for convenience. And I am assuming that these 15 year old girls, which I mean, I cannot imagine that they fell madly in love with these older men. You know, I can't imagine that that was necessarily a mutual decision as my marriage was. I don't know. I, I would love to, to, to be able to ask, but I don't know. It would probably be a sad story that I don't really need to carry around with me, but I don't know. It just seems like I carry some of some of that, even though I did not, I mean, obviously I did not get married off at 15 to some old guy, but I just think that the generations and generations before me that have just been passed, their care had been passed from male to male in the family, you know, and then to husband. And a lot of times it's, you kind of depended on like an older son to help you if your husband passed before you did. So I don't know. I just feel like at age 42, I have this kind of fire in me that's like, I need to know how to do things by myself because I might have to. And it feels good. It feels good to be independent. And not that I'm looking to become independent right now by choice. I mean, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's it's more of a, if I had to, I want to be able to do it. And I want to feel like I, and I do. I mean, my goodness, I I have all kinds of choices and independence within my relationship, but at, at the very core of it, it's like, he really is the provider, you know, could I do it on my own? So anyway, that's just some, some trauma. I think that I do carry with me, not necessarily, I don't feel like directly from my grandma, but just, I think all the women throughout history in my lineage. And I think it's, it's something that I feel like a lot of women have worked through that are my age. I mean, a lot of women did get the chance to be independent. I mean, my sisters got to do that. They experienced that more than I did. So I don't know. It's just funny, just things like that, how they show up. And, but I do think, you know, looking at my daughter, I mean, I want her, I want for her to get to experience being independent. I think it's important 
And in my situation, it just didn't work out that way. And it's not that I regret it, but I just wonder, could I do it? So anyway, that is that. Okay, so the last thing I want to touch on before wrapping this up is I want to talk about the first Cornelia Elizabeth in my grandma's line. So this would have actually been her four times great-grandmother. And this Cornelia, I feel like, I love that my grandma was named after her because luckily there is like personal accounts about her and just the little bit that I know just from these written family accounts that I'm so, so fortunate to have because man, this is the only one, like I think out of like all the research I've done, this was probably the most personal account that I have available anywhere in my family tree. So I really, I think it is so awesome to get this glimpse into her. And I love that my grandma is named for her because I feel like they are a lot alike. Like I feel like the personality or just the spirit that my grandma had in her, I feel like this other Cornelia very much carried within her. And so her story is she was born in the 1760s, I think 1766, and she was born in Camden, New Jersey. And so she was a child during that very tumultuous time leading up to the Revolutionary War. And then during the Revolutionary War, she kind of came into adulthood. And um, according to family accounts and just being able to look on um, just records online, her brothers, I think she had two brothers that fought in the Revolutionary War. So being a child and having to, I mean, I think every family had this, whether it was a dad or a brother or an uncle or a husband. I mean, everybody had somebody involved in the war, I'm sure, unless they were Quaker families. And then I don't know, I think they helped in different ways, but, um, it touched everybody. The revolutionary war touched every single person that was living in that area as it was taking place. And she was very much in the boy being right there in New Jersey. I mean, they were in the, in the thick of it and no, she did not personally go fight in the war, but she was home with her mother who was probably worried about her sons. You know, there was not the communication. I'm going to guess, um, they knew the conditions of the army were not good. So many died of sickness and just, it was such bad, like weather conditions too in the winter. It was just so bad. So worrying about that. And then also, I mean, you never knew when the British might come and take over your house or like if you lived in an area where it was kind of 50-50 on how people felt about it. I mean, I think there was always this sense of danger of like, something's going to happen. I think it just, you kind of, I think she kind of grew up with this. There's always this feeling of being on edge and waiting for the other foot to drop. Like something's going to happen. I think that's kind of the vibe of that time. And I don't know if it just kind of was her, the norm for her. So she, I don't know. I don't know how she did it. There's not records of how she felt about that and how that really played into her childhood and young adulthood. I do know that she married a, a man who did fight in the, he was on the continental line is what the records say. 
And he was, gosh, he was like at least 10 years older than she was. I think more like 12 to 15 years older than her, if I remember looking at that correctly. So again, quite a bit of an age difference there. But when they were married, she was more like late teens, early 20. Like it was more of an appropriate like age for a woman, I feel like, to be married. So again, she grew up in this time that was very much like kind of always on edge and what is happening as did everyone who was here during that time. And we, we all, if your family was here and had, had already immigrated to the United States prior to the war, we all kind of carry a little bit of that with us. Um, but it's just, again, it's how, it's how it's viewed, you know, if it's, and it's how you deal with those things as they come up. So she ended up marrying this, this man that had fought in the war. And I think they were just like, you know what, from what I understand, they were both just, well, probably more the husband because they made more of the decisions. They were like, okay, yes, the war is over, but there is still so much uncertainty here. It just feels, it kind of felt like it might go back and the freedom might be taken back away. I mean, this was before George Washington kind of was installed as being the president. There was just so much like, how is this baby country going to do? Like, yes, now we're free. And now what? How are we going to support ourselves? Who's going to lead? What if there's another war? You know, what if they try to take this back from us? We're exhausted. There's been so much death. It's just, I think everybody was just, like I said, exhausted from that whole experience. And I think they were like, you know what? We know what this craziness is. They were willing to trade in that known chaos for something that was probably equally as scary, but just it was different. So I think there was a hope to it. They decided to leave New Jersey, walk across Pennsylvania through the wilderness and settle, I want to say almost on the other side. I mean, they walked across most of that state and, and they did walk. They brought a, they had a horse and from the accounts that I've read, Cornelia sometimes did ride on the horse. When they left Pennsylvania or when they left New Jersey, she was five months pregnant with her first child. So there was no little ones that they were bringing with them. But I mean, that's about the time where you kind of, you start to feel the baby move. You are definitely starting to expand in the middle where things start to fit a little bit tighter. I mean, that it was her first pregnancy. I'm going to guess that was a little bit delayed maybe she had a little bit of grace time there. And if she was very physically active as she's walking, you know, all of these miles, maybe, maybe she was able to kind of not have to deal with the cumbersomeness of that until she got there. I don't know how long it took them. Sorry, the wind, of course, is deciding to really pick up right now. And I'm not really in anywhere that I can get away from it very well. So I'm so sorry about the wind noise. Anyway, Um, so yes, they, they left New Jersey. They were newly, I mean, they'd been married a while. She was not pregnant before she was married from what I can tell. Um, so five months pregnant, I think it was, so it was those two, her and her husband. And then I think there was maybe another couple or maybe it was like male family members or friends. I think there was maybe like, I feel like there was maybe a group of like five to seven of them total. They did not bring a wagon. They carried whatever it is that they had. And they, they had 
of course, things strapped to the horse that helped to carry. But very, very minimal things. I do believe they were they were headed somewhere where there, I believe, were relatives already somewhat established. And I say established, but it was it was the wilderness. I mean, it it absolutely was <laughs> like I cannot imagine. So it was not an easy. It was not an easy go, but they did have someone on the other end. So I think that's why they didn't have to bring a wagon or have quite so many supplies. Basically, they needed tools to like probably they needed they knew they were going to have to build a cabin. I believe they brought a milk cow with them. And other than that, I think they they brought I I feel like she talked about they would find beech nuts um, and they would. I don't know how they ate those, but I feel like she mentioned the beech nuts and they were everywhere. That whole walk across Pennsylvania, she talked about how there was just so many beech nuts. But I think they brought just enough where they knew they could kind of hunt for food along the way and they had the milk cow for milk and then whatever little provisions that they could carry with them um, otherwise. So, you know, I'm thinking this lady who's five months pregnant riding a horse isn't that much more comfortable than just walking it yourself and this was not like I don't feel like flat terrain I think they were it was hilly it was not like there were easy roads I mean I think they were kind of trekking through I mean when I there were probably trails I don't know that it was super populated enough to have like a main road or anything like that so definitely this sense of like adventure and pioneer spirit. And I feel like, okay, so if there would be a lot of women who would be like, uh, no, I, you are not dragging my pregnant self into this wilderness. I am not walking. What if I have to have this baby in the middle of nowhere with nobody to help me? I mean, how scary, like, I think a lot of women would have like tried to put their foot down if they felt like that was something that they could do, or they would have gone with this air of kind of being resentful to leave a very populated place that yes it was chaotic but you know your chaos and change that in for something that was unknown and you hoped that would end up being better but I mean this was a time where the Native Americans were not happy with the white settlers moving west onto their territory as they should not have been happy about I mean obviously um and I, I've talked about that whole bit in an episode in July and my feelings on what we did to the Native people and how it's hard to be proud of my family for being the brave pioneers when I know that it was at the expense of the Indigenous people who had the right to this land and who didn't believe in owning it and who shared it and lived in such harmony with nature it's, it's hard to be proud, but this is the ancestor that I did refer to in that episode where this Cornelia that she just, I think she had to have had some spunk to be like, yep, let's do this. And then just she, as an older woman, it says that she loved to talk about this. Like she would tell her story to her grandkids and her great grandkids. And I'm sure her kids knew the story. Um, especially the one that she was carrying. I mean, what a story to like, yeah, when I was pregnant with you, we walked across Pennsylvania and then we, you know, starting this new life in this wilderness and building a log cabin. And I think she went on to have like 10 or more kids. And 
very little female support out there um, to, to manage all of that. So she had to have had a lot of spunk because for me to hear that she was telling these stories with this nostalgia and this love for storytelling was kind of what the vibe was in this personal account. Um, it tells me that she, I feel like she did have some spunk and an adventurous spirit because I don't feel like if that would have been like a time, like if it would have been a really awful, horrible, hard life, I don't feel like she would have been quite the storyteller that she was. I mean, I feel like the way that this was described at how she would tell it, it was like she captivated her audience. Like she was a storyteller. And I love that so much because my grandma, she didn't so much, she wasn't the storyteller as in so much her own experiences, at least not to me, but wow, she was so curious and was, had such a love of learning. She had these, um, I don't remember what the book set was, but I think most people had them like in the fifties and sixties, um, world books or like this, these, the encyclopedias or whatever it was, but they had not only factual information in them, but they had stories and she just could not get enough. She loved those just as much as like my mom loved to look at them and how I love to look at them. I mean, I remember digging into those when I was a kid and just, and she also, she could read. I mean, she went to school through eighth grade and obviously she had enough, she, it's not that she could not read, but when she would read a children's book to me, um, no, she was making up those stories are not what were written in, in the book. I think she knew the story well enough. And then she would look, you know, she would go off on her own. Like her creativity took off and she, she was a storyteller. It was not her own stories that she was passing down, but she was taking books and like embellishing on them and adding to them. And as I grew up, I'm like, wait a second. And then I could read on my own. And I'm like, that's not, wait, this isn't as good as when grandma reads it. Well, yeah, because she, she was bringing way more life to those little Dr. Seuss books than, or whatever we were reading, uh, than was really there. So I, I love that I was able to connect the dots of this spunky pioneer woman and how, you know, she talks about how they survived, you know, making it through and they had the milk cow and they had the beech nuts and just these stories that she would tell her children or her grandchildren and her great grandchildren and how that spunk just, Oh my gosh, it just shined right through and how she, cause what a difficult time she could have had a totally different outlook on life and had this victim mentality and this woe is me and this everything is hard as I more relate to in my early adult life and my life as a, a young mother, that was how I felt and that she was just able to just, it appears make the best of it, make it an adventure. You make, you make of it what you do and you can choose how you want to live your life. You can either be miserable in a miserable situation, or you can try to find some lightness and joy there. And it's all about perspective. And I just, I love the, that I found that about that original Cornelia Elizabeth. And I love so much that I know that my grandma carried that as well. And that even though that's not, that was not my natural disposition, I feel like coming in, or it, maybe it was a result of just life. I don't know. 
and how I handle challenges and whatever, but like that I'm, I am starting to grow into that in now into, in my forties and embrace that. I just feel like, you know, yes, it's a result of, of the healing work that I've done, but I think also I've had these, I know my grandma's with me and maybe, maybe these other Cornelia Elizabeths are also with me, cheering me on and kind of helping and guiding me behind the scenes. And I just, I find so much comfort in that. And I think it is just so, so cool that I was able to connect those dots. And then, so I didn't really talk about that middle Cornelia Elizabeth. So my, my grandma's great grandma. It's just funny how it was like every three generations, it seemed that there was, there was one. So, um, anyway, I think that, um, she, that Cornelia moved to Montana. I want to say later in life, like that's where she's buried. I think there was a couple of sons that went out and tried their hand at ranching, um, and I think there's still family out that way. I believe that my grandma, yes, yes. I remember my mom talking about this. She had a cousin that lived in California and I believe he was part of that group that, that moved out, that his family had moved out to Montana or his ancestors, that part of his tree that they, the ones that moved out to Montana, he was in that area and that's how he ended up in California. And they, it's so cute. They were pen pals when they were both in their, I mean, I think they were similar in age. Uh, when they were in their eighties, they were writing back and forth to each other. And I just think that's so super cute. And, um, but anyway, that, that Cornelia must have also had, there was, there had to have been some spunk in her as well. Um, I think, you know, going to Montana and I mean, I hope there was, I hope that going out to, gosh, she would have been alive. I think she was born in like the 1850s. So she would have been a child of the civil war. And I believe she, yes, she lived in Illinois in 1860 in that census. So I'm assuming throughout the war, they lived in Illinois, which was not necessarily like where a lot of the, she was not in the thick of any fighting or any, like they didn't live in an area where that was really directly affecting their life. Um, and I don't know if she had any brothers that would have fought, but anyway, um, I, I hope that she was able to find some spunk. I mean, she married somebody who wanted, who was kind of spunky, um, she was one though, that was married at 15. So I hope that that spunk didn't get crushed or, you know, I hope she was able, I don't know. I think she actually lived to be, I want to say almost 80. She lived to be fairly old, I think, but, um, I don't know that my grandma ever got to meet her um, this, this Cornelia Elizabeth, who she shared a birthday with and who she was named after. I don't, I believe that once they went to Montana, I don't think they ever came back to Kansas where my grandma would have spent her childhood. Um, so I don't know that they ever got to meet each other, but I just think that that connection there is really cool. And I like to think that, you know, moving to Montana, what an adventure. I mean, that would have been in the late 1800s doing that. Um, and living on a ranch. And I just, I don't know. That's where my imagination kind of has to, to fill in the dots. And I, and I hope that I I like to think that that was the case. Um, so 
yeah, I just think it's, it was very cool finding that personal historical account of that original Cornelia and then knowing my grandma, being able to connect those dots and being able to find, yes, there was always, there's always the story of the suppression of women and crappy things like getting married when you're 15. And then, you know, all having all of, you know, lots and lots of babies and like, you know, having the infant mortality rate was high and just the things that they, that they dealt with on the day to day to survive, whether they were living through a time of war or depression or whatever the case may be. Yes, there's, there were always those hardships, but being able to find in this story and with, through this grandma, that there was just this ability to kind of come at life with a, with this lightness that was able to kind of balance out the hard, the darkness, the things that were challenging, the things that were difficult and not in a way that shoved them down, but I think allowed them to be worked through because looking at my grandma and knowing her, you know, until I was, I mean, she, she passed in 2012. So I would have been 32. I mean, that's, I, I knew her for most of my life and just her ability, like I said, to make, to make something out of nothing, to find joy in just the very smallest things in life that did not cost money to do. I mean, just being able, and she always, always was the caretaker and just found the joy in that. She loved having kids in the house. She babysat for several families and did not really even want to charge anything. She just really enjoyed having that vitality in the house. I think it gave her, um, purpose. It gave, it kept her young. And and I think she, my grandpa passed in, in 1985. And so she was, and she didn't pass till 2012. And so that's a lot of years there by herself. And so she did, she enjoyed having, that, um, youthfulness in the house. And I don't know if that would have been different had my grandpa lived longer. Maybe they would have traveled or done something different together and she would not have had that. But it's like, she made the best of this time where she could have, you know, sat in a chair and not got up and just watched TV or whatever. But no, she, she really enjoyed having the kids and and then there were elderly people in her neighborhood that she always was checking in on and taking care of and I say elderly but they were really more her peers they were maybe like maybe 10 years older than her but she loved that she would always kind of she was what is that neighborhood watch kind of really I mean she took care of the people in the neighborhood that she knew didn't have anybody and, and she really, she, she enjoyed it so much. She really did enjoy that caretaking role. I think she would have been a wonderful nurse or a wonderful teacher. And she really was both of those things through her life. She just never had the degree. She never had the actual job title, but man, she, that's, we always would go to her house when we were sick. Uh, mom would, would drop us off on her way to work and, you know, she, there was just something about those 
heavy afghans that she covered you up in and the food that she would make and it wasn't even anything that was that special but man she would she was so funny she would make toast and she would cut the crust off and then lay it to the side and she called that those were your breadsticks so i'm telling you like it was looking back i'm like man talk about creative and clever right? Like getting kids to eat the crust on their bread and not say, you have to finish it. You have to eat everything. We don't waste anything. Nope. We're just going to cut it off and we're going to make it fun. And it's it's a whole other food. And it's way more fun if you eat it as breadsticks than the crust on your toast. I just thought, you know, I just love that. It just still makes me laugh today. Just her, the cleverness there and, and knowing like understanding humanity, understanding the way that children think and never losing that. It's like she never forgot what it was like to be a kid, you know, and this is also coming from the, the eyes of her grandchild. Now I know that when she was a mom of five and she had three right in a row, I mean, she had a baby, a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and that was not easy I am sure they did live with my grandpa's family during some of that time. And so there was some help there from a mother figure. However, having three little ones right in a row like that. And then eight years later, um, I had, there was another one born. And then eight years later, my mom was born. But um, having five kids and uh, my grandpa was a railroader. So he was out on runs randomly. I mean, he kind of knew when he was at the top of the list, but I mean, there was a lot of times where, I mean, she was not only stay at home mom, but kind of that role of single mom, um, always provided for, of course, financially, but just a lot of the parenting as it did kind of came back to, to her. I mean, there were lots of times where it was just her if he was gone for work. So it was, I'm not saying that it was easy and those years of motherhood were easy. I don't know. I, I didn't live with her through the perspective of being her child, it was through the lens of a grandchild. So, you know, I, maybe it was different. Um, but you know, I don't know my mom, my mom has great memories. And so, but then again, her childhood's different though than her older siblings too, because there was almost a generation gap there with her oldest siblings being 18, 17, and 16 years older than she is. So it was kind of a different time, a different stage of my grandma's life. So, Again, I am definitely telling this from my my point of view with her. And I did get to live with her when I was um, going to college for those few years um, there in the same town. And she always, and I, I tried to buy my own food when I could, like, and not be really, I didn't want to impose on her. But man, she would do my laundry. She would come in and, and kind of make my bed in the mornings because I would leave really early sometimes and, and go run and then um, hurry off to a morning class. And so I didn't, I was not always really good about, I would pull the covers up, but I didn't do it nicely. And I'd come home, my bed would be so nicely made. My laundry would be folded up on my bed. Um, even though I was like, gosh, darn it. I didn't think it was time to do laundry. It wasn't really that much, but she went ahead and did it. I think just for out of love and something to do. And she would always pack my lunch for me. And it was always way more than I could eat. It was like two meals worth of things. But she was always so sweet in that she had my lunch for me. And she just, she loved that. And that would have been, she was in her 80s 
at that point, this would have been after her colon cancer episode. So she just, and she wanted to make sure I was having things that were healthy and nutritious and good for me. And I don't know, just the care that she gave and looking back, I'm like, man, my focus was like wanting to spend time with my boyfriend at the time, my husband now, you know, really wanting to be over at his apartment and spend time with him. And I'm, I'm just thinking what a treasure, what a treasure I had right there who I lived with. And I didn't spend a lot of time with in those years. I mean, my focus was definitely other places. And I think I, I feel like I kind of missed an opportunity there. And I, and I know she understood. I mean, I was not the only grandkid to live there during college. I think I was the third or fourth, fifth. Lots of us lived with grandma when we went to school. Um, and I, and I know that she loved it again. She loved having that life in the house, but I feel like there was really an opportunity missed by me there where I could have really had some more quality time. And again, my focus was just, you know, more in selfish places. So, but I, I know that she understood. So anyway, um, I think that kind of wraps it up with her. I think this, this episode, like I said, it was, it was different because I just really honed in on the fact that we all go through trauma. You, anywhere, anytime in human history, there's always things like war and famine and depression and societal just conflicts and suppression of women and just, and, um, abuse and uh, everything, all of the things that are challenges and traumatic. Um, we all have experiences like those in our line and we carry them in our DNA. However, I think somewhere along the line, as our ancestors moved through life, it's how they chose to move with the trauma. Did they choose to fight it and resist it and have victim mentality? Because that's, you know, because maybe their plate was not big enough to handle all of the, all of the trauma. You know, some of us, I feel like just have bigger plates. We can fit more on there comfortably and move through it. And sometimes it just is so overwhelming that it stays stuck and stagnant. And it, it doesn't mean that the people who have those smaller plates and who get stuck in the, in the resentment and the victim mentality and, and really kind of move through life with this chip on their shoulder. And, and we all have those people too, you know. And it's not that those people were wrong or bad or they didn't do life right it's like that was their lived experience and that's that was what they were doing this time around and maybe you know it life just got to be a lot and it was more than what they felt like they signed up for and they just weren't equipped to move through it with the ease that some people are able to and i think that's a lot of um kind of what how much baggage is carried through the DNA and 
past life experiences that are brought to this lifetime. I say past lives, but other life experiences that are going on brought to this lifetime and then this life's trauma. So some people just have a really big load and it's almost like, okay, this is not, they, I think after they go through a life that's really hard like that, where they couldn't quite move through it with ease and they really fought it and they, and it was really difficult emotionally and they couldn't move through those things. They probably got on the other side and were like, holy crap, that was really hard. And next time I'm going to try to do it this, this, and this instead. Like I want the challenge, but I need to have more support. I need to try to bring in different characteristics that and strengths that will kind of help me through it. That's how I see it. So again, we all have the people who struggled and had a hard time making it through and seem to be bitter and resentful and, and angry. And it's not that they were weak. We just don't know what they're bringing into the situation. And the ones that were able to seemingly live with this lightness, like my grandma that I talked about today, I, I don't know. It's like that time around, there was she had to have brought with her the strengths within her character and her personality that just were able to help her move through those hard things in a way that was with surrender instead of kind of that swimming upstream. And I feel like, you know, half of my life or more, I have spent in that space of swimming upstream and fighting life and feeling resentful and being angry and frustrated and playing the martyr and the victim. And luckily, I was able to catch that in myself. And I think that's eventually, I I mean, I think we all, if not this lifetime, another time, I think we all have to go through that where we, we experience all of those feelings and ex- like we, we carry that victim mentality. We carry that martyr mentality with us. I think all of us in some lifetime have done that. And I think it, you have to, as a soul, something like a light has to go off or a switch has to be flipped where you're like, okay, this is how I am being. Like there, oh, an awareness has to be sparked. And then the healing can happen. And then your soul is able to grow beyond that. And then I think that's when you can live other human experiences with more of a lightness. Because you've been able to live through those hard emotions. Those challenging feelings. That kind of more negative way of being. I guess if you want to call it negative. Um... Because I think, like I said, we all have experienced that in a lifetime at some point. We've all been that person. So if, we're, if we do have the ancestors there and they carried that and we don't, we've maybe worked through, we, we know how to work through those things. We recognize it when we see it and we make a different choice. Whereas maybe they have not. And this was their lifetime to have an opportunity to do that. And whether they ended up choosing to do so or not, you know, I don't, you know, it is what it is. So that's kind of my thought on like, that's my new thought on all of this as I've kind of moved from a space of that victim to I have choices and this feeling of life is happening to me to life is happening for me. 
I don't know, I could just probably ramble on about all of that for a really long time. But that's the lens I wanted to bring you today. This different lens and not to say that the other two grandparents that I've talked about so far were living in a place of resentment and victimhood and all that's that's not where I'm going with that. They too were resilient. They too chose to carry on through life, sometimes with more of a heaviness, I think, but not that they were bitter or angry. Uh, They were all very much still had the capacity for so much love. Um, And I felt that as their grandchild for sure. So I just feel like this grandparent in particular, this my grandma Cornelia, um, she just had that light about her. And I think she is just a soul that had, had worked through those difficult things in other lifetimes and came into this one with more of a lightness. And like I said, it's not necessary. It's not that that's better. It's not that she was better. It's that she just was in a different progression of her soul. So Okay, I have really, really talked a lot on this today and I'm standing out here in the August heat, dripping sweat, trying to stay out of the wind the best I can, but I do apologize. There was some wind noise today, but, um, and I don't know if you can hear, but the locusts are definitely um, making themselves known. It's just so funny. It definitely has this August, this late summer vibe is definitely here. It's just this mellowing of the season. I can just feel it. And I used to really get kind of anxious at this time of year, I think, because I was a teacher and it's like, oh, school is starting. Or even when you're a kid and it's like, ah, you know, another school year is coming and we have to say goodbye to summer. But the older I get, the more I just really embrace this time of year and and all the times a year. And I just think it's, it's just this, there's a beautiful sweetness to this late summer. There's just the mellowness that's like got some like wisdom or something to it. I don't know. I just really enjoy the vibe. So with that, I hope that you all are well, that you all have had a chance to get outside in nature today, even if it's scorching hot. I don't know. Depends on where you live, but I know here in the Midwest, it can be it can be kind of a, a beast at this time of year, but not always. So I hope you've had a chance to get outside and yeah, really just soak up this this sunshine before we're back into the winter months. So until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening today. I love having you join me. Even though I'm technically out here, just me and my dogs, it is exciting and heartwarming to know you are out there too, listening, walking, adding in your thoughts as we go. As always, I hope everyone has had a chance to nurture themselves with a little bit of nature today. Mother Earth always has the best medicine.